Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Tracy Anthony, and I was so grateful to be able to sit down with her as she is a world-class scientist. She's a full professor at Rutgers in New Brunswick. We won't hold that against her. And her research explores cellular responses to nutrition and exercise. In her lab, she utilizes animal models to explore, ready for this, mechanisms of proteostasis, which is something that we talk in great depth about. And she uses this for applications towards improving metabolism, reducing disease, and increasing health span Again, health span versus longevity. She is an expert in the area of protein restriction and is a basic scientist, very geared towards mechanism. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I want to stop here and and take a moment to thank our sponsors. And I am very particular about who I partner with because I believe you guys deserve the best. And we're talking a lot about protein, protein in the diet, higher protein diets, protein restriction, and really to look to see if any of these things are working for you, we have to validate that. And the way in which we validate that is through blood work. And that is why I have partnered with Insight Tracker, because you can take health into your own hands and actually identify markers that are important for your health and well-being and inflammation, of course. So check out Insight Tracker. They provide you with personalized plans. They give you insight into where you are so that you know where you're going to go. And uh, they also have something called Inner Age 2.0, and that is a calculation of your true biological age versus chronological age, which is the number (laughs) of candles on the cake, which for me is 29. Just kidding. Uh, for a limited time only, you'll get 20% off the entire Insight Tracker store. Just go to insighttracker.com forward slash Dr. Lion. That's insighttracker.com forward slash Dr. Lion. And now back to our show. Dr. Tracy Anthony. Hello. <laughs> this is amazing, by the way. Um, and you are a bona fide scientist. Yes. With a very long history of experience. Yes. But I think what's most important and unusual is you and I share a mentor. We do. Don Lehman. <laughs> Can yes. you believe that? It's 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 a wonderful thing about science is that you gain a family in science when you are around long enough. Isn't mm-hmm. that amazing? Mm-hmm. And so you were initially in his lab. Yes. And uh, you also met your husband there too. I did. I did. So I have all three of my <laughs> children to thank for, I thank Don for, you know, yeah. Amazing. My progeny. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Don. We actually, we actually joked at one time because I have three children, my husband and I, and we both in a lab that worked on branched-chain amino acids. So for a while there, we thought we might name our children a derivative of leucine, isoleucine, and valine. That so probably would that, have been the first was, ever in yeah. the history of ever. That I don't know if it would have been the first, but it was at the time we thought it would. We didn't do that, but that was... Yeah, they would have really never forgiven you. Uh, you know, yeah. they would have fought over who was going to stimulate mTOR. It would have been just an entire <laughs> mess. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were in Don's lab at University of Illinois. Yes. And Don has, was there for 
gosh, he's professor emeritus in there for decades. Right. Um, you look great for 29. Thank you. Um, you know, it's, yep, I was very young. <laughs> still are. I was very, very, are. very young starting that lab. You know, uh, one of the reasons why I was so thrilled that you were willing to come on this podcast is because not only were we trained by the same individual, but you are a very fine researcher. Thank you. With a very long history of publications and doing extremely important work. Appreciate that. Uh, no charge. Um, you like my mom jokes? Yep. Coming in hot. <laughs> yep, coming in hot. Um, now, I would love for you to share with the listener how you started, what some of your original research was, how it progressed, because at the end of the day, ultimately, you are now looking, you're probably looking at multiple things, but uh, why I was so interested in having you on, uh, which is really for a number of reasons, but your work in methionine restriction. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm sure you're not surprised yes. to know that I would love to talk about protein, yes. but perhaps protein from a different aspect, mm-hmm. different than my personal views of a higher protein diet, and perhaps what some of the science is showing as it relates to protein restriction. Yes. But I don't want to get there yet, but I eventually do. Okay. I just would love for you to share with the audience where you started, what the original research was, how that has transpired. Okay. I started my interest in nutrition as a college student at Virginia Tech, and I I was an athlete. I was a softball player. I was a pitcher, actually, in high school. And so I was interested in nutrition Mm. as it relates to exercise performance. And when I uh, was in college, I originally wanted to be just like you, a physician. (laughs) And uh, my senior year, I I decided that maybe wasn't my path. Mm. And I had a mentor in college that sort of steered me toward research. Oh, interesting. Something I I really had no idea about. So you're from Virginia. Um, I'm from the Chicagoland area okay. originally, okay. Midwest girl, moved to same, Virginia. Same, by the way. Yeah, yeah. very good. Another common. So um, moved to Virginia when I was 13, mm-hmm. went to high school in Virginia. So that was my state school. Got Virginia it, Tech got it. You know, my school. husband is from Virginia, by the way. It's a great state. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed my time in Virginia. And um, yeah, so I had this mentor, Forrest T was his name. I was an undergrad researcher for him and he saw something in me I didn't see in myself. It's really important in your life to listen to those people. They you know that see something in you that you don't see in yourself. It is. And uh, so I took his advice and I applied to grad school and I applied to several places and um, I get a call from Don Lehman on in in this in this time of application where he was looking for someone saw my application, Mm. thought I'd be a good fit for his lab, and recruited me as a master's student. Interesting. And did Don know your current, was there an interface? Because typically they all know each other. I knew from my personal statement that Mm. I had an interest in nutrition and exercise. That was my interest. And and that was sort of one of the foci of his labs, of his lab. So I I think there was just a meeting of the minds, maybe. Mm And so he recruited me into his lab, and I worked on a project which, you know, it's funny when you look back on your life how sometimes things come back around. Mm -hmm. And this project had to do with malnutrition, protein malnutrition. Okay. And how one would recover, Mm. growth recover from protein malnutrition. Mm. He had a, a, a rat model. Okay. In which rats were given 
half the amount of protein and mm. energy from birth to adulthood. Okay. And when you put this kind of diet mm -hmm. onto rats, they grow half as much. Mm. They look perfectly healthy. They don't suffer malnutrition. They mm. look per because we give them all the vitamins and minerals, but okay. they get basically growth restricted, we call it. And then at that point of adulthood, his grant that he got wanted to see how could we help them recover their growth best. Mm. And he had a, a design in which you'd give them an enriched diet, so more protein. Okay. Okay. Uh, and plus or minus growth hormone. Mm. So that's kind of what started my interest in focusing on protein mm -hmm. was this idea of growth, how protein, the amount of protein determines growth mm. from a young age, and what's the role of protein at a later age to determine growth. So, you know, that's that was kind of my master's degree. And, you know, kind of bottom line of that work was that um, giving more protein and an enriched diet in adulthood, it didn't actually grow the muscles of the rodents that we used. Interesting. It just made their livers fattier and they had okay. more body fat. Okay. So that was interesting. It was mm -hmm. not what we hypothesized. And what did you hypothesize? Well, we thought that the pro that the enriched diet would help build muscle mass, but right. that in combination with growth hormone, it would have the best effect. Hmm. Growth hormone, in fact, did have some effect, but it lost its effect over time and not because of something with growth hormone. It's just that animals will make antibodies to a foreign agent. And, right. and so it kind of neutralized the effect of growth hormone over time. So growth hormone does what you think it does. Right. <laughs> that worked. But in combination with protein, um, it didn't have quite the synergistic effect that we had hoped, okay. I would say. Um, and so from there, I, I decided to stay with Don and conduct a PhD. Because at the time I, when I went to grad school, I didn't know. I didn't okay. know what I wanted to do, but I thought I really liked this life of staying on a college campus. And, and you loved the University of Illinois weather. The University the, the of weather, Illinois the oh, winter. Oh, it, was a, it was the weather that kept me there. <laughs> the weather and the cornfields. <laughs> yeah. Not much more to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, <clears throat> yeah, it helps you focus in your work when there's not too many distractions. So I turned my research during my doctoral times to something related to exercise. And that was how you could improve muscle recovery hmm. after exercise. And this was work that was following up from a doctoral student at the time. His name is Greg Paul, mm -hmm. excellent, excellent scientist. And he was looking at including protein in meals before exercise to see if that would help improve muscle recovery after exercise. And he was finding a lot of what we call negative data. Right. That essentially that really wasn't. Very unfortunate. The, happens. Well, you know, yeah. I, I guess the thing is it, it's not, yeah, some people would see it unfortunate. Uh, I think it's always an opportunity, right? It's still an answer. Right. It's still, if you're, you know. in, in Very the, in, well in, said. You know, very it's an answer a, that helps you find the truth, right? right. I mean, you got to you gotta keep moving forward. So I, I came in at a time that was kind of fortuitous because he was doing all these pre-feedings and we thought, mm. well, let's try after exercise. So we thought we would try a different combination of meals after exercise to see if that would improve muscle recovery. And okay. we were using muscle protein synthesis right. as that measure. 
And I mean, you probably know this story. You know, you've had but, you've had Don Lehman on, yes, but you know, but magically, not everybody else does. You know, ma- yes. you know ma- if you will, magically, <laughs> uh, the meal that it contained protein. Yes was the one that was successful at fully recovering muscle protein synthesis within an hour Mm. after exercise, of endurance exercise. So I think what's important about that is that up until that time point, there was certainly a large population of athletes, bodybuilding type athletes, Mm -hmm. that were already using protein in their diets. And there was already this circumstantial, you know, relationship that Mm -hmm. more protein would help build muscles. Nobody was in the space of endurance exercise. That was it was all about glycogen right. recovery, if anything. So the fact that we were using an endurance model was is kind of novel at the time in itself. Mm-hmm. And you know that so we were kind of taking a different angle. At the same time, there was another lab that was using resistance exercise. And so we kind of ended up in the same conclusion hmm. around the same time, that regardless of the type of exercise, whether it's resistance or it's endurance, that having that protein meal after that bout of exercise was really important hmm. for recovery of you know muscle processes. And this and, was new. And At, novel. Yeah. People were not time, thinking totally. about it at this time. Yeah. I mean, now people see, hear this now. You hear anabolic window. Right. You hear all about. This is like taken for granted now. Right. Totally, totally novel then. So, you know, we had this information of like, it's the pro, it's the protein containing meal that mm. is causing this total recovery of muscle protein synthesis. And so we immediately thought, well, what could it be in protein? And we kind of collectively... Uh, came to the conclusion, well, it's probably leucine. <laughs> we took a, a leap, okay. I mean, a complete leap of faith based on the work, Teresa Davis, right. garlic, I mean, so many others in the past mm-hmm. that had done the work. We just said, you know, it's probably leucine. And thought that if we just gave leucine and nothing else, could you actually cause the same outcome? And uh, You found that that didn't happen, did you? Well, so what we did is we said, well, how much leucine? There was a a paper at the time that said that if you gave some leucine, it it didn't have any effect. But we thought that that wasn't enough. You needed to have a certain Uh, threshold threshold. amount, right? And how many years ago was this? This was? This work was actually done around 1990, between 1996, 1997. And the reason I... It wasn't published till, so it got published 1998, 1999. And the reason I'm bringing this up really isn't to highlight it for you, Mm -hmm. but it's to highlight to the listener in understanding that the things that we're talking about now, you were actually there. Yeah. Just like Don was there right. in the beginning right. with pieces of data, thinking about there's one study over here, there's, you know, maybe they're thinking about it in Galveston, Texas, and you'd have to get on, I mean, because they, you know, there wasn't social media, the, the interface between the scientists right. was, it was a phone call and a visit. A lot of phone calls, yeah. <laughs> a lot of phone calls, yeah. 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 I mean, there was, some, yeah, there was email, but it wasn't like it is today. Right. Yeah, for sure. And access to the literature. Yeah. There was no PDFs. There was there was no papers online. That didn't exist. You had to go to a library and photocopy a paper out of a journal. You had to go through a, a card catalog and find, you know, you had to go to where the journals were. If you if it paper wasn't in that library, you had to call around and find another library that would 
you know, uh, photocopy it and mail it to you through the mail. <laughs> that is <laughs> <It> outrageous. <laughs> I mean, whoever it took, invented it the took, PubMed, whoever invented PubMed is a genius. You know, when I when I started my first faculty position, uh, it took six months before I, I had there with the technology became available to deliver a paper to my desktop. I had to fax a, a request and then they had to go find it in the in the library and then they had to fax it back to me. Everything was in paper. Mm. There was nothing electronic. So, you know, there were less journals too. There was less, I mean, there, now there there's were, so much right. information now. There's, you know, there's, it's the beauty, but also the frustration of, of so much information yeah. now. Um, Do you think that the quality of the data has changed? Oh, yeah. I mean, in both good and bad ways. Mm. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's so many ways to get data faster. Mm. Uh, and, and in some ways better. I mean, technology of sequencing, um, the volume of data you can get a hold of, and the tools that you have to illustrate those data. Um, it, it, I could have never imagined that, even just you know back in the, in the 90s. But, right. uh, but with that comes this uh, higher standard of how much data you need to put into a paper. I mean, back in the 1990s, um, a paper, a really rich paper full of data was like five figures and no multi-panels, just one figure, you know? And those were often hand-drawn sometimes. They weren't, gener you know, mm. they're not always generated in computers. Um, it's a very, very different level of productivity. Mm. Metho slow and methodical, took time for everything. But it gave you a lot of time to think. I think that's today. There's so much information coming at you. You don't have the time to like, sit and think with the data and make that next hypothesis. You're just always trying to keep up with what everyone's generating. The, the, so I, I think that's the it's frustration. Very it's very noisy. It's very noisy. It's very noisy because... So I appreciate the transparency today yeah. for the reader, for, for anyone can go out there and, and, and read a scientific article. Not the case. And that wasn't the case before. Not the case. Right? It was the privilege of being in academia. That was part of the privilege is you had access to restricted content. It was content that was definitely not made for the general public. It, it, you know, that was a barrier to entry and that's why you wanted to be in academia for those that and wanted that knowledge. And arguably it still is a barrier to entry there's, to understand it. There's absolutely still barriers that go beyond access to the papers. There's barriers in terms of the language yeah. and the, the knowledge that you need just to understand intricacies and the, the you know things we take for granted you know years of training you take for granted when you go into a scientific mm -hmm. paper that you can pick apart that someone that wouldn't be in that have that uh, benefit right could be very confusing right very confusing so I teach a class at Rutgers and you know, I teach a class called nutrition and fitness and um, a big part of that class is uh, students have to go through uh, what I call an individualized journey. They have to pick a supplement that they uh, would like to take for themselves or maybe their family members. And they have to research that supplement at all levels of inquiry. When I say all levels, I mean they have to pick the lay article that they find it from, let's say Cosmopolitan or <laughs> Men's Fitness or something. And they have to say, who wrote that article? Who pays that person to write that article? Are there Are there conflicts of interest mm -hmm. and what they would say about that. Um, they would have to go to medical sites and be able to see what's what's out there in the medical 
lay press. They have to go to PubMed and try to find a scientific article. It, you know, you can see the frustration and how how do I know? How do I know what's good information? Right. It, it, it's really hard for, I have a lot of uh, empathy for students today um, trying to figure out how to make sense of science, how to make sense of what's good science yeah. from what's bad science. I, I think that we're gonna clear up some of that today. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think everyone probably really appreciates that acknowledgement because I get messages every day how people are really confused mm -hmm. and they don't know what to believe and I think oftentimes it's not that collectively we don't know what to believe, it's how do we interpret the mass amount of information. For an example, I got a message yesterday that it was a longitudinal study about um, a vegan diet being better for Alzheimer's. And you and I would say, well, this is a longitudinal study, this is epidemiology data, this is not uh, a randomized controlled trial or something that is taking one point, putting it through the rigors of science and then showing an outcome. Right. But, you know, I get messages saying, wow, this is so confusing. Um, yeah. my, my grandmother has Alzheimer's and I think that she should go vegan because I'm seeing this longitudinal study. Right. Um, which is why someone like you, it's so important to be heard. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are gonna get to points of protein restriction and how you ultimately even ended up in Rutgers. I don't think I know how you got here, but don't tell me yet. I wanna go back to making this discovery because I, you know, I was talking to Don and, and really his big contribution to science mm -hmm. was putting out there that leucine, which is one of the essential amino acids, is in fact a meal threshold amino acid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That yeah. That wasn't really discovered before that. No, and like I said, I think there were efforts before us to try to uh, um, you know, study that idea, but they missed the target. Mm. You know, for, sometimes science is all about serendipity, and I think for yeah. us what what happened serendipitously is when we tried to decide on a leucine amount. Did you guys get it right? You know, I think it was, like I say, serendipity. <laughs> we sat, I remember, that's like a table of the size of this table sitting here, and we said, how would we decide how much leucine to give? And I said, well, why don't we just take uh, the amount of food that uh, an animal would consume in 24 hours, calculate the amount of leucine in that daily intake. That's interesting. And give them that, because it's a large amount, but it's physiological. It's the mm. amount that someone might consume in one meal, you know, time-restricted feeding. They might just eat a lot in a short period of okay. time, and that's it for the day. Not that at that time in the 90s we had that term time-restricted feeding, but that was sort of the, the right. concept, is right. that how could we come up with an amount that would be... Do you remember what it was? Yeah, it was like, well, I, th I think it ended up being 270 milligrams for the for the, for the the rats. And uh, yeah, and there's, uh, you know, I think you put that to grams per body weight. Right. But it's scarily exactly about what they use now in all of the protein supplements mm. for people. I mean, this is where I guess rodents are a good model for people. So that that amount yeah. is 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 been retained as being a threshold amount. So, um yeah, you know, you, sometimes you'll just you'll take the luck when you when it yeah. hits. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So at that time, you guys determined that there was a leucine threshold mm -hmm. for stimulating muscle. Mm -hmm. What happened after that? 
Well, you know, at that time, um, uh, we were done with our degrees, <laughs> and it was time Bye, to make, <laughs> it was time to make the next decision of what to do. And and at that point, my husband and I were working on this same project with Don, and we both needed to find the next place. And we had created a a collaborative uh, research agreement mm-hmm. uh, with another lab at Penn State College of Medicine. And we ended up going there and, and to work in that lab together. And we continued to explore the effect of leucine, um, not necessarily with respect to exercise, but just in general. Hmm. How is it that leucine is causing protein synthesis to be increased? What's that mechanism in the cell? And so that led to, we were there for three plus years, very productive time. Uh, my husband published uh, a series, his his PhD thesis has a lot of this, published a series of papers looking at how uh, that mechanism is through mTOR. Right. So that, uh, and we, we know that because we could, like through drugs, through pharmaceuticals, block the effect of leucine with a, a drug that would block mTOR activity. So we... And we, was that rapamycin? It was that rapamycin. That That's right. Mm. Yep. So, and we also identified that, you know, insulin was permissive. You needed, you need some insulin. So we can understand why uh, it's a good idea to have some carbs with, with, the, with the protein in that meal. You kind of get the best of both worlds. You kind of give that permissive effect mm-hmm. of insulin to help with the uptake of amino acids and that maximize that effect of leucine. You also can help, you know, stimulate glycogen replenishment right. as well, too. So. You know, it, it, these things have been f- figured out, if you will, through the ages. We're just scientists trying to learn how to describe <laughs> it, right? So yeah. that's what's always thrilling as yeah. a scientist is to for like get the first window on mm-hmm. something that's been happening through the ages, and now we know why. It's it's yeah, amazing, yeah, amazing, yeah. And ultimately, your research now is really interestingly on protein restriction. Yeah, you know, specifically methionine, which is one of the essential amino acids, the sulfur-containing amino acid. Exactly. Yeah. So this goes back to my master's project. That's why I bring it up mm. because I started my career in research with essentially protein restriction, and it always intrigued me that I thought that these animals that were given half the amount of protein and energy that they wouldn't look unwell. They, were they the same size? No, they were half the they size. They were half the size. Exactly half the size. They so were, they were smaller. They were gated to the <laughs> amount of protein and energy that they that they okay. were given. Okay. Okay. So it's a little different model because there's also energy involved. It was it was caloric restriction. It was caloric restriction, not just protein restriction. I mean, it was it was both, right? And we have to say that rodents are not small humans. They have different amino acid needs. They have fur. It's not totally. It's not 100%, uh, right? We're yeah. similar. We're both mammals. Translatable. It's, yep. um, it's a model. And I'm, and I'm, I'm going to be sorry to forget the person that I need to quote, <laughs> but my, one of my favorite quotes is, a model is a lie that helps you see the truth. Okay. Okay? So, I mean, it's, it's a model. Mm. And you got to take it for what it's worth and, and uh, try to find the common denominators, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, it's, uh, and we respect our models greatly. I just want to take a minute and thank one of the sponsors of the podcast. This is Element. This is an electrolyte powder that I've actually been using for quite some time, both personally and in my practice. 
I have used it in a few ways. Number one, for muscle cramps. It has really, really helped. Number two, when I am reducing calories and fasting, depending on what I'm looking for, it has really helped my hunger. It has a science-backed electrolyte ratio, has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. It does not have sugar, doesn't have colorings, no artificial ingredients. It is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. And, you know, as we are talking with Tracy, if you are high carb, low carb, high protein, low protein, keto or paleo, your body goes through a tremendous amount of flux and electrolytes certainly can help, especially if you are going low carb. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packs free with any Element offer. This is a great way to try all eight flavors, to share Element with your friends. Uh, You can get yours at drinkelement.com backslash Dr. Lion. And they also have a no questions asked refund. So if you don't like it, it is totally risk-free. Okay, back to our show. So, you know, I think that uh, that idea of caloric restriction and protein restriction, and what is it about that, that uh, led to this response that wasn't unhealthy, started to uh, come back to my brain Mm -hmm. as I had to design my own lab. And, um, I was thinking about it in terms of not just wellness, but how about also disease treatment? Mm -hmm. And did they live longer when they were restricted? So yes, protein restricted animals do live longer. So caloric restriction uh, causes longevity. Uh, Many caloric restriction. So could you be optimized for protein, but reduce calories and still live longer? Yes. So could show certainly if you're calorically restricted, depending how calorically restricted, you could still achieve, let's say, the RDA of protein. Which is 0.8 grams per kilogram That's for right. people who are. That's right. So you could st- you could still be protein sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, I like how you said protein sufficient. Yeah. Because perhaps it's not optimal depending on the time yeah. of life or what your needs are, but it certainly is sufficient to prevent deficiencies. Right. And that's, you know, that's really kind of from a population standpoint, RDAs are set up in this way to sort of prevent deficiencies. But that's a concept that uh, I would say in modern times we've moved, we're moving past. The field of nutrition and, and qualified nutrition professionals are moving past this idea of trying to prevent deficiency and moving toward optimizing health. I would agree. Right? So if we think about think about what we've done in modern medicine, we've done a great job of extending lifespan. We have. We haven't done such a great job at extending health span. Right. And in fact, the latest measurements would say that there's about a 10-year gap they call that the health span lifespan gap mm-hmm. in which there's about 10 years of life on average in which modern medicine can keep us alive right but we are, we are not healthy and yes. and really for society uh, and for individuals the the goal is to try to figure out how to narrow that gap how can we use nutrition 
to do that. And it's not going to be the same answer for everyone. Right. So this is, I think, particularly for protein, super important mm-hmm. to understand is that each person is going to have their own biological goal. And that biological goal is not the same throughout their own life. Right. And they need to be mindful of what that is and adjust accordingly. And protein is absolutely one way you can help reach your biological goals Mm. with life. And it may change. So bottles of protein supplementation after exercise, I believe in my heart. Are they for everyone? No. Okay. But are they for the right people? (laughs) Yes. All right. I mean, it really depends on who you are and what your biological goal is. If you are a couch potato and you never exercise, I don't care how much protein (laughs) you're supplementing, okay? You're not gonna grow big muscles. Right. That that's that's just that's just not how metabolism works because in fact you need your muscles to be working to provide that stimulus. You need a stimulus to use that nutrition. So it's a partnership. It's a partnership. And these low protein, protein restricted paradigms, do they are they good for everyone? Absolutely not. <laughs> and are they good? What, what would be an example? But may they be good for someone? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you perhaps. think, you know, it's interesting because you come from a very protein-focused lab. Mm-hmm. And that's really where your initial training began. Yeah. Aside from your undergraduate, but moving to master's and then PhD in Don Lehman's lab, everybody knows is protein leucine, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of synonymous. And so fascinating that you then circled back uh, from looking at exercise, optimizing protein, seems like there's a little bit of carbohydrates for recovery yeah. um, combination, but then... How did I make that leap? Then circling back to this idea of protein restriction yeah. and the the data that you use, the, the models, are you using rodent models? Mm-hmm. And you're still, you're doing it today. Yeah. Yeah, I moved to mice. Oh, I don't use rats me. anymore. Okay, thank you. Oh, do you know <laughs> I got use smaller? Oh my! <laughs> so I also worked in Don's lab, uh-huh. and I—you know how it is—as the uh-huh. undergraduate who never actually gets put on the paper, but does all the grunt work yes. and all yes. the uh-huh. the rodent yes. work. Uh-huh. That was me. Mm-hmm. That was brutal. Thank underneath. you for your service. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Not my husband. Oh my gosh, that was that was brutal. Do you remember underneath, like in this oh, kind of yeah. like spooky and? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, time for another. That that oh, will yeah. tell that story another time. Yeah. yeah. Um, what were some of the things that you started to see? So let's start from a, a broad perspective. If I were to ask you, what would your protein recommendation be for someone? Uh, I don't know. Uh, let's say in their forties, mm-hmm. who is looking to prevent sarcopenia or to optimize for muscle mass. Have you thought about what that looks like? So. I think the data on protein restriction, while it's very compelling and even exciting for me as a scientist. I won't tell anyone that you might be excited by protein restriction. I'm excited (laughs) by that data. I will say that when you make the leap to human physiology, Mm. I'm not there yet, okay? I, my lab uh, focuses on these models um, from the viewpoint that if I can understand the mechanism then maybe I can figure out a way to biohack it without necessarily having someone stay on a consistent diet all the time. I personally find these kinds of diets 
uh, they're going to be hard mm -hmm. to sustain over time. And you mean a higher protein diet or your wheelhouse in terms of methionine restriction in the work that you're doing now in mice? It could be either depending on okay. the person. I mean, methionine restriction, so I'll, I'll back up and say that methionine restriction, that's a historical term. So in 1993, Norman Reintrek was the first person to publish that animals that were on a diet that was zero cysteine and dropped from, uh, you know, 0.8, whatever percent, whatever the normal mm -hmm. percent methionine was, about an 80% reduction in methionine, okay? But it was zero cysteine. So it was basically restricted in sulfur amino acids. It was. Right? And those animals lived 40% longer, okay? So that was the original, uh, and I have to give credit to that, That that's the seminal investigation. Um, and then, you know, I think someone who's done, uh, there's still a foundation, the Arendtrek Foundation, wonderful mm. place really wonderful scientists. They work really hard, okay? They're up in, in New York and uh, still working on that topic. Another investigator, Tom Geddes, has done a, a lot of work on this to basically expand that original foundation mm. into general metabolism. So it is the sulfur amino acids. It's not just methionine. You have to have both. If you actually add back a little bit of cysteine, you, you, All lose, bets are you off. lose the effect. You, you, you That's lose interesting. the effect, okay? And, and those two amino acids, it's really difficult to find a diet Yes, it is. That is adequately low it is. in those. Mm -hmm. um, there are people that are trying to bioengineer. This okay. is true. So basically what I'm hearing you say is a methionine cysteine restricted diet is not a normal diet to eat. It would take, uh, a, it would take either an extreme approach, mm -hmm. like strict, strict veganism, uh, or you would have to do some, uh, yeah, some engineering. And when you say uh, engineering, some, you mean engineering of food to make food with a certain amino acid content. Right. Yeah. Right. And and a little, you know, or designing your menu very carefully I don't, to be yeah. able to hit that. And that would be a very strict vegan diet. Yes. Um, so there are thoughts that strict veganism, we always say flirts with this sulfur amino acid mm -hmm. restricted lifestyle or, right. or, or plan. And that, uh, because the um, the common denominator here is a, it's a hormone that the liver produces called FGF21 yes. or fibroblast growth factor 21. And that, that has um, profound effects on metabolism, whole body metabolism. And, uh, FGF21, would that be considered a stress response? It is, it would be, it's a hepatokine, it's mm -hmm. a liver derived hormone. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and it is definitely a, a, stress, a stress hormone. Yeah, so many effects are kind of linked to this FGF21. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but I will say a lot of pharmaceutical companies have tried to capitalize off that, right? I none, see that. Have, none have been successful yet. So, you know, any of these one one trick ponies have, mm -hmm. have never quite worked out. So, you know, this is the, the balance as a scientist between using a diet to find a target that maybe you could biohack or find a pill or find a right. way to manipulate so that you don't have to have this whole lifestyle plan. The other side of it, or the nutritionist in me would say, well, things like Mediterranean diet, it's because it's a pattern of eating. You're never gonna be able to, you know, find one path. I think there's room mm. on both. I think there's somewhere in between. Um, that's why we keep looking. We keep right. looking for what that what that is that causes those those stress responses that are good. So one of the concepts in my lab that I keep my eye on is that stress isn't always bad. Okay, I agree. So so you want you know this is this concept of hormesis where mm -hmm. a little bit of stress is actually good, builds resilience, but you can go too far with that 
And then there's maladaptive. It's you can't really recover, and that can you know shorten your lifespan, not be good for you. Too much stress, right? But you want to get in that chronic. You're saying you're saying chronic stress versus Goldilocks zone of stress. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you know maybe a little bit of FGF twenty one every now and then, or maybe a little bit of this kind of diet. So that's where I love things like intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding. Or let's talk about that. Yeah. Um. Let's talk about where a vegan diet perhaps would be beneficial Mm -hmm. and the length of time. And again, I I know that perhaps there isn't hard data endpoints on this saying, you know what, this is what is going to be good for everyone all the time. Mm -hmm. But perhaps when we're looking at, if we were to look at time frame of a month, would there be benefit of an individual doing a what do we call it now? Methionine cysteine restriction or sulfur restriction? We, I mean, in my lab, we call it sul- sulfur amino acid restriction. Okay. We called it SAR. Is that, you know, so I mean, <laughs> very yeah, fancy. Yeah, 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 very fancy. Yeah. Is there because, you know, one of the things with science that you alluded to before is that people trial different things. For example, the bodybuilders used a lot of high protein or protein mm-hmm. carbohydrates after feeding well before anybody knew why it worked. Yep, and perhaps when we are seeing these extremes of nutrition plans like a vegan diet or even a carnivore diet, there may in fact be some benefit to these nutritional strategies, but we just, number one, don't know the mechanism of action. Number two, can't say for certain it translates to humans, or we just haven't found the right way or model of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, um, a term that's probably going to be new to your uh, your listeners. Would that be the integrative stress response? I'm going to get to that. <laughs> but but before I get to that, mm-hmm. there's a term. The word some people uh, so it's proteostasis. Okay, which is also called protein homeostasis, and that's essentially all the processes in your cells that regulate the lifespan of your proteome, which is all the proteins in your cells. So you imagine just like a whole organism has a lifespan. Every individual protein in your body has a lifespan. And those processes in making those proteins and then breaking them down to recycle them and replenish, that's proteostasis. Sounds a lot like autophagy. So autophagy is a part of proteostasis. Uh It's in the back end. It's in that clearance mechanism, right? So, you know, if you are making, as we age, which you and I are not doing. No, but not if, at all. But if we were to consider aging. It, 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 yeah, you know, one, one thing we, we, we try to avoid in aging is, is mistakes getting made. You know, as, 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 right. as protein synthesis is increased, there's an increased chance that the proteins that get made are not made properly. Right. And if they're not made properly, that can cause damage within your cells and they need to be cleared away. So that's what proteostasis is all about. Okay. So if you have problems in proteostasis, that's what happens with advanced aging, with chronic disease, degeneration, is poor proteostasis control. And when you say advanced aging, what would be a endpoint of that? Um, so neurological, okay. cognitive Alzheimer's, function that's what I was wondering. I see. would be a great example. Okay. Even cardiovascular disease okay. would be a great a- example. So, so essentially you're saying these diseases may in fact start in proteostasis 
Yes, there. That is that is kind of the hmm. the. I think some of the newest trends in science are linking. I know inflammation is one area, but proteostasis well, is definitely an an, an area hey, of what we think I, about in terms I of. Believe that these diseases start in skeletal muscle for a multitude of reasons. Yes. Yes, and I mean, obviously, that's going to be a large portion of your pro- proteome and your right. in your protein uh, in your body. So, so you know, I when it comes to proteostasis, um, we have to think about not just the making of protein, but the breaking down, that turnover, and that refresh rate. And part of that refresh rate of your cells mm-hmm. uh, is regulated by a number of mechanisms, and this is. This is kind of where my lab has migrated to studying are these mechanisms that regulate proteostasis. So that's where we get to integrated stress response because this is a pathway that is a stress response pathway Mm -hmm. that um, is there to signal to our cells, uh, you know, things aren't great right now. And maybe we, we should go wanna, on vacation. Yeah, maybe we want to slow some things down and try to improve uh, control in other places so we don't make more mistakes. So we don't cause our function to go even further south. And you're specifically talking about, and I know I'm making really bad mom jokes, but you are talking about, well, let me ask you this. Are you specifically talking about protein turnover, which in my mind is what, 250, 300, upwards of 400 grams a day, 400 might be on the high side. Is that what we're talking about? Or are we talking about full body, total body turnover? Yeah, I'm talking about more about the latter. Okay. At, at the level of our cells and our tissues. Everything, blood, everything. Yeah, Okay. exactly. That, uh, you know, that if, if you're given a nutrient stress, a protein stress, mm-hmm. you don't have all the amino acids to make the proteins that you need. Right. It would be a bad idea to have high rates of protein synthesis because you're going to make damaged proteins. So essentially, what I'm hearing you say is that a sulfur amino acid restriction mm-hmm. slows down this process slows of slows protein synthesis, right? Proteostasis down mm-hmm. because of the missing amino acids. Yeah, so it it improves proteostasis because it slows synthesis while increasing breakdown. Got so, it. So when you think about overall turnover, it's gonna help with sort of the fidelity of what gets made in the cell, because mm. it's gonna kind of make sure that what gets made gets made properly, and anything that is not uh, properly made is gonna get turned over. Right. So that, that kind of makes the overall environment of the cell healthier. There is less damage. So that's that's improved proteostasis control. Mm. So when you have these periods of, let's say, a sulfur amino acid restricted diet, you're kind of forcing the cell into these reserve modes, right. into this, uh, slow down, let's let's clean up. Let's clean up the mess. And How long do you think that would take in a human? <clears throat> oh, in a human. I, it, well, it's certainly activated meal by meal, but how long it stays activated. And how long would it have to be activated for a benefit? That's a great question. So, you know, I would say that we've done a little bit of work in that space. Um, Certainly, um, you could perhaps have an intermittent kind of model, but I don't know that anyone Mm. knows for certain what that 
timing would look like. That's interesting. But this is very, very compatible with like, uh, you know, the kinds of time-restricted feeding or 5-2 um, plans. You see a lot of these. You do. You know, and I, I would say that it's, it, it could also play true for something like sulfur amino acid restriction. You could imagine, let's say, veganism a few days a week uh -huh. balanced by high protein, let's say, when you're going for your run. You could mm. mix this up and you could get the benefits of both. Would it be beneficial to do it for a series of days every month? No one knows, but it's an interesting idea. Mm. I mean, yeah. I, it would yeah. be really interesting. It would be if, really interesting. If there were hard biological endpoints from sulfur amino acid restriction yep. above and beyond calorie restriction to yep. help improve proteostasis. Yep. Some of the clinical data that I've seen is promising. Uh, mm. Some of my colleagues in the field did try um, a sulfur amino acid restricted diet for several weeks in people and did see improvements in liver metabolism, kind of overall wellness. Um, but larger trials, larger studies- Have not been done. Have not been done to and, really know. And you know, the next logical question, and I, I really wanna get back to the integrative stress response, mm -hmm. because I think that that's very interesting and perhaps plays a potential role for mm -hmm. some of the things that we're seeing, like these fasting mimicking diets. And I don't even know if uh, how bone broth would play into that, but you know, that is an unbalanced yeah. amino acid product. Yep and certainly found in nature. They're yep. interesting potential ways we could use food sources. Right. And I don't know particularly if it's low in the sulfur amino acids, it's certainly low in the branch chains and devoid of tryptophan. Right. Um, right, so you know, um, one of my uh, colleagues in this field, um, uh, his name is Jay Mitchell, and um, excellent scientist. He actually passed away a few years ago, mm. but he, he published a series of papers where he would feed uh, anim mice or rats uh, a protein-free or a diet that's deficient in tryptophan for a few days before a surgical stress that was typically not recoverable and found that uh, those animals that were fed that tryptophan deficient diet or protein-free diet. They, no way they survived. 100%. They survived? It went from 0% to 100%. In a tryptophan restriction. So feeding a diet that was totally deficient oh, in, in tryptophan. correcting for it. Zero tryptophan. Okay. So protein quality zero. Protein so, quality zero. Or a protein-free diet. Okay. That that, that improved survival. Hmm. So it was fed before the surgical stress. That improved survival How? to 100%. How? Well, at, again, I think it's through this integrated stress response. Okay, That's let's talk what about the paper, it. You know, uh, but this, again, was rodent yeah. mice models. and. Right. And right. There, are there amino acid needs different? Well, no. I mean, you know, I, human requirements, human amino acid requirements are based on rats. So um, there's very little evidence. I would say the only um, difference might be that because rodents are furry creatures, as you point out, their sulfur amino acid needs may be a little higher maybe than people. Maybe a little people. higher. Yeah, probably. Um, strangely enough, though, all the RDA needs are, are developed from male rats, by the way. Okay. Um, which is another interesting thing. A lot of this pathways, you know, a lot of times the science comes from studying just the male 
uh, and and we're finding that there are there's sexual dimorphism. So there's a lot of science to be done with women in this mm. area. A lot of science needs to be done with women in this area and you know, in the female. I just learned something because from what I was taught and what my perspective has always been is that protein requirements is really based on, well, first of all, let's just say there may in fact be a lot of issues with the RDA. Mm-hmm. which is the recommended dietary allowance yeah. as 0.8 grams per kilogram is the bare minimum still to this day based on nitrogen balance studies. Right. Which I will talk about in another episode, but they there are pretty significant flaws to that kind of translation to what perhaps would be optimal. Right. Um, which then makes me think when I think about protein requirements, I oftentimes think about body composition, Mm -hmm. irrespective of hormones. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's wrong. Well, I mean, I we don't know yet. No, I think they're I mean, they're they're probably related in some Mm. way. uh, But there's genetics involved um, and lifestyle involved and physical activity involved. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's all. That's all true, hmm. what you're saying. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. might not totally be wrong. <laughs> no. You're, yeah. I don't, I don't think you're ever wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> I kicked her under the table really hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But let me get back to this, this concept of why would um, having amino acids low or absent, like an hmm. essential amino acid, your body doesn't make it. Why would consuming a diet or consuming a meal, why would that be healthy, in fact? So what we find, what we've spent many years uh, in my lab investigating is that if you feed a diet that's absent of an essential amino acid, you cause this stress response. It's called the integrated stress response. And what it does is that it slows protein synthesis, but it also causes certain proteins to be preferentially made. And those proteins are important for resilience. They're important for oxidative defenses to help with reactive oxygen species. You know, are we talking about glu- what are we? Are we talking about glutathione? We can't possibly be. So we're just we're just talking about ways to help get rid of ROS. So glutathione is one way. Um, hydrogen sulfide is another. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many different antioxidant defenses in the body, and what we find is that on balance, uh, the the total amount of them present tends to be boosted with this integrated integrated stress, stress response. response. Yes, so. Part of that integrated stress response has to do with managing nutrients in the form of amino acids Hmm. by amino acid transport, amino acid synthesis, uh, ways to be able to deliver the cells, Mm -hmm. the substrates they need for for growth. But the other has to do with stress resilience and antioxidant defenses. So this kind of diet activating this stress response Hmm. is good in the short term. How long are we talking? A day? A week? Well, it's a great question. You know, the thing about this this stress response is if it happens to go on too long, it's not necessary. It's always there to help protect to protect you, but on balance where you're going with health, eh, you know, I really think it's supposed it's supposed to be a short-term strategy. It's supposed to be something that gets activated for maybe hours, maybe days, 
and then resolve. I agree with you because one of the things that we didn't discuss is what happens over the long term to body composition and muscle mass. Right. The older we get, the less recoverable that seems to become. Right. And to me, if we were to implement a integrated stress response mechanism or strategy that perhaps can be very beneficial in the short term, but used very specifically and not overstated to say that this should be used as a long-term strategy over years. I agree, and and the reason why is because while in the lab, we can show things like mm-hmm. low protein or low sulfur amino acids has longer lifespan, what the public doesn't understand is those animals are kept sometimes in a sterile environment, but oftentimes a super clean environment. They're never challenged. Their immune systems are never challenged. Um, They're in this cage that doesn't have the threats and stresses and all sorts of things that would be in normal life. And so in a a free living individual, (laughs) right? right? This kind of stress, this kind, which is one type of stress, a nutrient stress, mm-hmm. we we don't know experimentally if you layer on top of it other types of stress like immune stress or inflammation mm-hmm. or anything else that they may not, if anything, that may compromise the ability to defend against other stresses. So it's it's something that in the short term we can see clear benefits and outcomes. But long term, with muscle mass, I have concerns that 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 would actually result in um, wellness, in optimizing muscle And also some of the other things that you had mentioned, like uh, immunity. That's right. They are living rodent models in this way. It does not translate to humans. The mechanism perhaps does, but understanding exactly what you said, that the environments are perhaps different. Where in nature... You know, I I often go back to nature and thinking about these things and these patterns must exist, right? You shouldn't have to deeply engineer a food Mm -hmm. to meet a need. Yeah. Right? Right. We should be able to implement this strategy in nature in a way that makes sense because I, I don't think that we're smarter than nature. Yeah. You know, the easiest way to implement, in my opinion, this is why I love the, the kind of time restricted feeding models because, um, what it does is that it's mindful of the fact that we live on a spinning planet. We are diurnal, meaning we have phases to our existence, a night and a day, we're up and we're not. I, and there's I a think normal my time. Sun would beg to differ. But. Well, yeah, so this, this <laughs> that leads to aging <laughs> when you're arrhythmic. <laughs> yes. In our parents. Grow up, yeah. boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, but you know, there is a natural time in which our bodies are geared to not be taking in food, a fasting period. And when you're fasting, you're turning on the part of proteostasis that's about cleanup. You're activating these mm. breakdown processes to clean up all the damage. If you're always in a fed state, you're not allowing your entire body system to go through that process of cleanup mm. and refresh. And so, to me, time-restricted feeding is beautiful because it actually capitalizes on all the benefits of you want to have protein designed at a certain time period in respect to your activity to get that benefit of growth. Mm -hmm. But then you also have a phase of cleanup in which you you really want this diurnal rhythm of your metabolism, of your, you go through a fasting period 
and a fed period. When you have too much fed periods, unless there's some people that need that. I mean, right. nothing's 100%, of right? Course. There's certain people out there, I know listening, that you know they have to eat a meal every few hours because they have a certain condition. Right. But, and you know, of course, we're not giving medical advice here. We, we no, just no, no, are, no, 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 yeah. that's right, yeah. But, but in general, I think you find a lot of people's metabolisms do very well and normalize with this idea of having a fasted period. And then in their fed mm. period, they think about their protein. They design their protein for when they are going to be active and when they want to, you know, support their muscles. Right. And would you say that, for example, if you if an individual were to do, say, a bone broth, mm-hmm. bone broth is deficient in tryptophan. Would that? It is. Do you think that that is a translatable activity or a translatable choice for humans to think about? Yeah. So bone broth is one of these things. I don't think there's any science out there to tell you why people think it's healthy for them. Um, I've speculated for <laughs> forever that I just think it's probably activating the integrated stress response. It's probably GCN2, which I haven't even said that word yet, but it's probably uh, having this amino acid stress response yeah. that's activating these same kind of resilient pathways, and it's doing it intermittently. And that's what's leading to some of these um, you know, effects in some people, uh, maybe not all, but some people are more sensitive than others to that. Yeah. For the same reason Jay Mitchell's work. (laughs) (laughs) And what about this idea of cancer and sulfur amino acid restriction? Yeah. So definitely you can go into the literature far back that uh, low sulfur amino acids can inhibit tumor growth in some models. And have we seen that translate to humans? You know, there is some human data, but I don't think there's any right now. I mean, recommendations yeah. for that. I haven't seen particular any. cancer. Um, I would say that probably the um, the more uh, productive path is to understand how to how to use that with chemotherapies that are target targeted properly. Right. Um, so there, you know, there's certainly uh, labs that are trying to look at mm. how you would. Uh, restrict an amino acid in the diet along with, let's say, a drug that might right. have a similar effect. I thought would be interesting. And I think in general, a lot of that has to do with just slowed growth. I would agree with you. Yeah. Uh, I but, mean, I am not a cancer expert, but yeah. I would have to say... But I will tell you, there are mm-hmm. several companies right now that are looking at the integrated stress response, and they have a suite of uh, chemotherapy agents mm-hmm. that are directed at the integrated stress response for cancer killing. Uh there are several of them right now, and they are in clinical trials. So, yeah. you know, the just like our bodies would uh, would react to stress and nutrient mm-hmm. stress and slow things down, tumors do the same thing. Um, and so then the key is, uh, do you want to activate the integrated stress response in a tumor and then hit it with something else? Or actually, do you want to inhibit it? Right. Because sometimes when you inhibit the integrated stress response, then you have a really bad outcome when you're faced with that other kind of stress. And when you mean inhibit, you mean potentially you could be talking about overfeeding. Yeah, that's true. That would be one way to get there. I mean, I would say that um, what I was thinking initially about inhibit is sort of short circuit the entire pathway. Okay. Um, Pharmaceutically, chemically, Mm. or genetically taking out. I see. Something from that pathway. Um, But... It's an interesting idea if you think about, let's say, high carb, high fat feeding. Right. You know, high, you know, protein feeding. That would that would that would take out the integrated stress response right. per se. Not maybe maybe not to a drug though. 
I mean, but maybe it'd be better if you had a certain diet that would match with it. Mm. You know, I'm sure everybody wants to know, what, what do you eat? What do I eat? And you know, it's funny, right? I'm, I always thought to myself, oh, no one cares what yeah. I'm eating. But, but I do think that people are very curious yeah. to hear other individuals, especially individuals within the literature. And, and you have a nutrition background. Yep. Which, again, you're a nutrition scientist. Yep. Yep. And yep. people want to know. Yep. So I um, I tend to eat more in that time-restricted feeding pattern mm-hmm. when I am uh, not training for something. So, you know, if, uh, like, I ran the Princeton Half Marathon before COVID, um, time-restricted feeding I uh, would not do during that. Because, Why? well, when you're trying to run 10 miles at a clip, you know, you, I don't think it's a good, you're already so, uh, you're already so starved for for nutrients trying to recover. I don't think that's a, a good idea. I'm not saying it wouldn't work for anyone. Wouldn't work for me. Right. Um, but if I'm not in training, not uh, you know very very active in that regard, I, I find that you know having time restricted feeding um, makes me feel better. And so you would. So when would your first meal be? Well, I should try to push off. Uh, I mean, I will have coffee in the morning and something very 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 small, if anything at all. And so I try to push off my first meal till a little bit later in the day. She's and laughing. It's probably two o'clock. She probably hasn't eaten. I mean, did you start at two? So, Some days I do. So so I only I I had a granola bar on the way here only because I, I didn't want I, I didn't bar? want my I didn't want my uh, stomach to growl. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm making her very nervous. Yeah. yeah. No, no. I'm you know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm a traditional nutritionist. There's no bad diets. <laughs> um, very well said, by the way. Very yeah. well said. Yeah. Um, and you're probably. And I really right. think that every day, every day is an opportunity to try something new. So I don't I don't spend a lot of time getting upset about my yesterday's okay. meal because I always think. Uh, the next meal is a new opportunity and a new short-term memory yeah basically i definitely try to eat lean meats and salads and vegetables and try to stay away from fatty fried foods Mm -hmm. i do all the things that you know you would say that you're supposed to do um and uh, but I, i i probably do cluster myself to maybe two meals a day okay rather than three and you've been able to maintain your body weight on that and body composition for 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 the most part yeah for the most part yeah i mean if you want to have like a peri post menopausal <laughs> discussion that's a different session but you know no, i mean listen i there are there are really uh two main protocols that i use in my practice and one of those you know one is two larger meals a day yeah. And really, I do optimize for protein. Uh-huh. I'm very mindful of muscle. And those individuals are upwards of 50, you know, beyond 50, 55 grams. You're not doing much for muscle yep. protein synthesis. But yep. again, protein ingested in a 24-hour period, whatever that goal is, yep. should happen. Um, those in an effort to protect against sarcopenia. Yep. And those in an effort to maintain and say are happy with their weight. Two meals a day is perfectly adequate. Yep. So that is I one. Pro- that is one protocol that I use. I I agree. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of anything that you are seeing, are how involved with the general public 
in terms of what you're hearing, what you're seeing. I mean, I don't think you're on Instagram. I know because I just posted something about you. Yeah, it was all good, I, by the way. It was all truthful. It was good. Nice. I, yeah. I, I have an Instagram <laughs> account. You do? Okay. I do. I think I have uh, one picture of pancakes okay. on it, and uh, and that's that might be about it in okay. my Instagram. Well, we, uh, yeah. be sure to tag you there. I will, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll have to pull it up. Um, yeah. But you... I am on Twitter. Oh, you are? Very, very mildly, okay. but yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So do you get into scientific debates on Twitter? No, I don't. Do you see them? Uh, I see them all the time. I see them, and I try not to spend a lot of time right. with them. So this is the thing: I have a complicated relationship with social media mm. because I can either deliver content in the lab and in journals, right, uh, or I can deliver content on social media. And for me, I I, I can't really figure out how to do both. It's really and, difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I I admire those that can, but um, yeah, yeah. But my my goals are really about. Um, I always see myself as I'm a I'm a content provider. Um, I'm not a. I, I try to limit my time being a consumer. Right. Consuming's good. I mean, I need to know what's going on. Right. But um, my life's work is about being a content provider. Meaning, yeah. I want to generate the new data that can give people something to talk about. Yeah. And debate and argue about. I want to find the next concept. I want to find whatever. What are you working on now? Is there a new next concept? Is it top secret? Yeah, I mean, I have a student that's working on um, uh, diurnal rhythms and metabolism. Okay. Uh, Really, really interesting stuff Mm. he's working on. Um, I have another student. I didn't even get to talk about this, but I, I You use, can talk about it. We have all the time in the world. I, I, My uh, producer, Stefan, yeah, and Alexis is over yeah. in the counter, probably uh, over here. She's eating yeah. um, cookies. I see her. Just yeah. kidding. She's not. <laughs> it was watermelon. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I use the same integrated stress response, and I, I have, you know, 15 years of work looking at chemotherapy and how to make chemotherapy safer. Hmm. So I use, I study a drug called asparaginase. It's got a long word, and it, it's used to treat leukemia in kids. Hmm. And it's a drug that's, while it's very effective, uh, it's very toxic. Okay. And it's toxic in an unpredictable way. Hmm. So I've tried to figure out why can we make that unpredictable predictable? Can we figure out who is susceptible to the toxic effects of this drug so that they could be put on a different schedule? Because you're talking about little kids with their, you know, lives ahead of them. Can we improve event-free survival to 100%, you know? So so this drug is, is, is... absolutely activates the integrated stress response through GCN2. Mm. We've been able, we were the first to, to, you know, identify that, characterize the whole pathway, and that's being used now. That's actually the work that's being used by these pharmaceutical companies going in to try to inhibit GCN2 or activate GCN2 to, to better kill cancer. Um, so, you know, that's that's one area that is a very exciting for me mm. that I have a student on, and he's looking at sort of the interface of obesity. Okay. Uh, so your metabolism and what that's like uh, under this drug. Mm. So we, could, we can predict and be able to screen patients for who would be the right person to be on this mm. drug and who wouldn't be, yeah. So you're changing the world by coming up with mechanisms of solving for a chemotherapy drug instead of posting on social media. And Instagram and Well Twitter. said. Well said. <laughs> so disappointing. <laughs> it's so disappointing. Um, yeah. Is there anything in the mainstream nutrition that you think 
you would love to clear up? Oh my goodness. I mean, for me, I'll give you an example. For That's me, an overwhelming question. I know. I, know. I mean, there's so okay, much. Okay, just pick one. <laughs> overwhelming just question. Pick one. pick one thing. Is there uh, one thing? So for me, I could tell you, yeah. I hear, you know, I people talk about protein being bad for you. And people are very confused about this topic. It is it is wrapped in emotion and nostalgia and arguments and fighting and mm-hmm. and I am really on a mission to clear that up if it's the one thing that I can do and contribute. And obviously, yeah, very interested in muscle. But you know, from your perspective, someone who has been a career academic who is really doing important work, and we didn't even talk about your accolades or your funding or all the other things that you happen to be in a position to do. I am curious from your perspective, is there something you wish you could wave a magic fairy wand and say, I'm going to correct this for people? Okay. Um, and you can just pick one. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm going to jump off, since this is a protein form, I'm going to jump I'm going to jump off that a little bit. <laughs> it doesn't bit. have to be. Don's going to be very disappointed if you say something about Pop-Tarts, but we'll roll oh, with it. Oh, oh gosh, no. No, I'm going to say that, you know, there's still out on the internet this idea that uh, having a high protein diet is bad for your kidneys. You know, and and I want to say that that concept comes from uh, some I don't want to say bad data, but incomplete data. Mm-hmm. Uh, a number of papers that were published, uh, you know, before 2000 at this point. In uh, the, the idea is that they're bad for your kidneys, but then also that it would cause uh, your bones to be leaching calcium. I think that that's the one that's really interesting to me is that somehow a high protein diet would. Uh, also cause uh, problems in bone. And that data had to do with measuring urinary calcium, but never actually measured absorption. And in fact, you know, when people went back and and cleared that up and studied both Mm. sides, it it finds that net balance is is better in both both cases. Like only if you are actually having in this in the condition of chronic kidney disease that that's where of course you have to be careful of your protein intake i'm you know that's that's clear mm. but in healthy people uh bones and kidneys there's there's really no evidence that 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 is bad for for mm. people that a higher protein intake uh, is is perfectly fine and when you say higher is there a number that you're thinking of um i would say the rda is it, Beyond the RDA is fine. I mean, you know, there are a lot of organizations that are coming out with numbers when you talk Mm -hmm. grams per kilogram body weight, uh, up to two, you know. I've Uh, seen higher. I've seen 2.2 grams per kilogram. I've seen higher than that. You can even go higher. But Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, these are all these are all ranges Mm -hmm. that are perfectly acceptable depending on your biological goal. Right. uh, And um, not cause for concern. You know, I mean, yeah. I uh, I would say unless you are uh, really into eating rabbit only, <laughs> <laughs> the rabbit starvation <laughs> diet uh, probably will be next out. Uh, that people will probably be packaging yeah. rabbit starvation yeah. for individuals that don't yeah. know it yeah. is. What yeah. happened? They were just eating rabbits have no it's fat. It's so lean. It was just, yeah, they have, you uh, need you need the fat there, right? And uh, you know, in about a week, you'll start having diarrhea, and, yeah. and not soon after that, you might you might succumb to death. Yes. in that. But I mean, that's, rabbit starvation. Th- that's a fun, uh, tr- you know. Uh, <laughs> Don't recommend anybody history. do that. You this can is, look that up. Yeah, you, know? you can look it up. Look we are up. not telling anyone to do this. We yeah. are just talking about the rabbit yeah. starvation. Yeah. Don't even know how we got on the subject, but yes. Yeah. I mean, there's always too much of anything is yeah. bad, right? Right. I mean, water intoxication. You can. Yeah. You know, and, so. you know, I 
I have been, you know, I'm writing this book and I've been looking a lot back into the history. And it's very fascinating to see where we came up with these current recommendations. Mm -hmm. the, the reality is, is we have a perception of how much is a lot. I think that we can measure it with carbohydrates because really the body has one mechanism of action for dealing with uh, high levels of glucose and that's insulin. Mm -hmm. Whereas the body, and perhaps this is extrapolation uh, of thinking, but the body really has multiple ways of mechanism, mechanisms of dealing with low blood sugar, whether it's counter-regulatory stress hormones or glucagon, there's multiple ways the body can account for low blood sugar. Um, so I, I believe that we have an endpoint of what is diabetes and, and how that looks over a, a two-hour glycemic challenge or a meal challenge. So we know how much carbohydrates could be toxic for an individual. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, this is balancing all things considered, training and everything. But for protein, I really believe that our original understanding and perception of what is a lot is perhaps uh, not accurate. Right, well, you know? you know, I think the basis for protein requirements, first of all, was in male rats. And when they were identifying all the essential amino acids, they did this by making purified diets and they would add increasing amounts of each one of these mm. amino acids. This, this went under something called Bertrand's rule, which is also used for vitamins and minerals. You know, mm. how much to uh, maximize the growth of a male rat. So they would give increasing amounts of these amino acids and monitor growth of the rat and once they reached that plateau, that peak point, that was the established amount, okay? Beyond that, you would have basically a plateau, maybe at some point even a, you know, a decline, but you know, they just basically identified what would be the amount of maximizing that mm. growth. But that is a very narrow window right. of right. what constitutes health and wellness, uh, even for the male rat, let alone humans. So, you know, I think that the, the story is much more rich and, uh, and interesting mm -hmm. when we think about how protein can be used in metabolism mm -hmm. and, and the needs uh, of the body at different stages of life. And um, so, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I think that the, it was a good starting point. I mean, obviously, our recommendations today come from a desire to first make our war fire fighters right. as, healthy, 1940s you know, as healthy as possible. Yep. And then and then by extension, to make our civilians as productive as possible. Mm. I mean, this this was a noble uh, venture to do. Um, and that, but that's not where we're at now in society. Right. We're at a different place. Right, yet you know? we still have. We, we've, we've achieved the lifespan <laughs> yes. goal, but yeah. not, you know, I mean, maybe some people think not, you know, we don't live forever, but you know, but, but that health span has to, we, we have to do better there. I agree. Yeah. Dr. Tracy Anthony, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. You have amazing information to share. You've done incredible work. And if nobody has thanked you, I will thank you Aww. and my audience thanks you for everything that you've done and are providing to the world. Well, thank thank you. you so much for having me. Yeah. This was fun. And people can find you not on Twitter or Instagram, but they can actually search you in PubMed. Uh, yeah, theanthonylab.com. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Okay.
The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.